have you ever waited with great anticipation for something? Perhaps you might have imagined a run-through in your mind of what the big day or the big event might entail or perhaps what that special gift might look like. And then it arrives and it's just not quite at all what you had imagined. I need some slides at this stage. Can we... Now, I've got my family here today, and uh, so I thought that since they're here, I'd show you one of our most treasured family photographs. <laughs> this is a classic photo in our family, and it shows Luke over here in the middle. He's now 18, but right then he was two years old. And uh, the one in purple is... Joel, who's now 16, and the other one there is Ashley here, their little cousin. So this was only a couple of days after Joel and Ashley had been born, but for many months, Luke had eagerly anticipated being a big brother. But when the big day finally arrived, Joel and Ashley, but I have to say mostly Joel, weren't quite what Luke was expecting and not quite what any of us were expecting. This photo pretty much sums up how Joel was until he got to about two and a half years of age. <laughs> and the look on Luke's face there, one of complete bewilderment, that for me is the look of Easter because it's the look that I imagine that the disciples probably had as they struggled to come to terms with all that was going on around them. Now, we love this photo in our family because it represents the reality of what it was like to live with Joel as a baby. If you come to our house, you might imagine that there was a different reality because we have photos on the wall that show a happy, smiling Joel and Bruce and I look at them and say, how did we find those seconds when he was actually smiling to take a photo? Those photos lie and they deny the reality of what it was really like to live through those first few years with Joel. No number of paediatric specialists, no number of non-dairy infant formulas, no amount of reflux medication, nothing would soothe him. And so consequently, Bruce and I looked like sleep-deprived zombies for most of that first two and a half years. Now, I sent this photo to my aunt as a joke. And unbeknownst to me, she framed it and put it... The first thing you see as you walk in her front door, there's a hall stand, and it had this photo on it. And uh, when I went over there, the first thing I saw when I went in the door was this photo. I went, oh, why did you put that there? And she said, quite simply, everyone always sends me cutesy, posed baby photos. This one tells it exactly how it is, and I love it. And for me, the Gospel of Matthew is just like that. It gives an account of the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus 
in exactly the same way. It tells it exactly how it is, and I love it. So let's take a look. If you'd like to turn, if you've got your Bibles with you, to Matthew chapter 28. We've got two readings from Matthew. The first one is from verses 1 to 10, and then 16 to 20. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the, the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And then if you jump on to verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Matthew tells it exactly how it is and he makes no attempt to leave out the embarrassing details and even manages to throw in a little bit of humour into the mix. Did you get all the details? First to the tomb after the Sabbath were not the beloved disciples, but two women. And so it was that the first witnesses to the resurrection were two women, both ineligible by virtue of their gender even to be valid witnesses under Jewish law. And yet here they are. God makes no distinction. Then imagine the scene. The women reach the tomb and there's an earthquake and it's not just your standard everyday earthquake. Matthew records specifically it was a violent earthquake. Why was there an earthquake? Matthew says it's because of the angel of the Lord who came down from heaven, rolled the stone away from the opening of the tomb and then proceeded to sit on that stone looking like lightning. Then the guards who had the seemingly simple task of watching over a dead body become themselves like dead men. Meanwhile, the real dead body is nowhere to be found. 
Methinks this gospel writer enjoys a bit of a laugh. Then an angel, looking like lightning, sitting casually on a massive stone he's just rolled away, addresses the women that have just survived a violent earthquake with what must go down in history as one of the greatest understatements of all time. He says, do not be afraid. Angel proceeds to tell the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen and to remind them that they were supposed to go to Galilee and meet him. In spite of the angel's assurance, the women are still afraid, but they're also filled with joy. And they run off to do as they're told when suddenly the risen Jesus himself appears in front of them. Again, he says, do not be afraid. And again, a second reminder for those disciples to get to Galilee. Disciples do eventually make it to the mountain in Galilee where Jesus has told them to go. There he appears to them in all his risen glory. They worship him and yet, oh how embarrassing, some of them still doubted. In spite of this, Jesus goes on ahead and passes the baton for ministry to them in what we know as the Great Commission. Now the reason why I love this passage is because more than anything else, it speaks to me of the authenticity of the gospel message. Because no one in their right mind who was making up a story to try and convince people would actually write it like Matthew has written it. If you were trying to make up a credible account for a Jewish audience, you certainly wouldn't have two women as your primary witnesses. And surely you would leave out those inconvenient details about fear and especially that very inconvenient detail about doubt. If I were making up an account, the disciples would have, in obedience, already gone to Galilee in anticipation of Jesus appearing there. And then when they see him, they would all simultaneously fall to their knees in worship, being filled with joy. Instead, Matthew juxtaposes joy with fear and worship with doubt. And it's these two pairs that we're going to have a look at more closely today. Fear is nearly always seen as a very negative emotion. And joy, of course, is nearly always seen as a very positive emotion. Fear and joy are not a combination that we would normally expect to experience together, are they? Well, any of you who have been parents will likely remember that moment when you approach the hospital doors with the new baby in a basket or on your, on your shoulder. It is a moment of pure joy. But then you step out over the threshold of, of that hospital and fear grips you for the first time because suddenly you realise that you have absolutely no idea what you're doing with this new child. I remember it took Bruce and I ages to secure Luke into the car seat the first time we had to leave the hospital. Partly this was because, unbeknown to us, we bought one of those really annoying car seats where you have to first clip the two clips together before they'll go into the, the buckle, which was a decision we regretted for the next 15 years. But also, we were so fearful of damaging him 
in the process of banging his little soft head or twisting his neck or pinching his chubby thighs in the buckle, which was a very real fear because it happened quite a few times. But once we finally did get him into that car seat, we drove home at about 40 or 50 kilometres an hour, all the way astounded at how fast and dangerously everybody else on the road was driving. Fear and joy is the new parent experience. Well, what about this one? The expectant groom. Such a joyful occasion for the bride and the groom. Yet often when the big day comes for both parties, there is a good dose of fear as well as joy. What will the future hold? Have I made the right decision? Am I ready for this? You know, I attended the wedding of a work colleague a very long time ago. And the groom was so fearful that he almost didn't go through with it. In an attempt to calm him down, the desperate groomsman took him off-site for a few beers. Evidently, a few beers turned into more than a few beers, and the men returned to the venue. Celebrant arrives, speaks with the groom, and finding him partly incoherent, declares that by law she is unable to marry um, two people who maybe don't know what they're doing. Groomsmen, ever alert to trouble, decide once again to rescue this dreadful situation, this time by force-feeding the groom cup after cup after cup of coffee. Coffee eventually spills all down the front of the white shirt and the pale blue suit of the groom. Bruce can remember this wedding. <laughs> the couple's wedding photos were forever a testament to a good dose of joy and fear on that particular day. But just for the record, the two did live happily ever after. Well, what about this one? For a Christian family, the scene played out at the bedside of a terminally ill loved one can also be a scene of fear and of joy. Fear, perhaps in the actual process of death. Fear that their loved one may be in pain. Fear at the prospect of life without them. And yet, great joy in knowing that they will pass from death into new life in heaven where there is neither pain nor tears. Then there's the first job or even a new job. Great joy associated with securing that position for the first time and anticipating the role and all the benefits that it will bring. But usually also a good healthy dose of fear in the mix as well. Will I be able to do the work that's required? Will my new colleagues accept me or like me? What if I look silly or incompetent? on my first day. Fear and joy may seem like very unlikely partners, and yet it seems that in life, they attend all of the big moments together. And so it is for this very big moment in the lives of these women attending the tomb. Matthew tells us, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, but yet filled with great joy. Now, there are many, many references 
to joy in the Bible and overwhelmingly, as I've said, they are positive. It begins with the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. John 16, 24, Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And in Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Someone found it and hid it. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he had to buy that field. So joy, overwhelmingly, is associated with something that you desire. It's associated with being complete. It's something of value that you treasure. And it is something associated with However, joy is not exclusively a good thing. Joy on its own is not enough for true faith to take hold. As Jesus explains in his parable of the sower and the soils, he says the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who has heard the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So joy on its own can be very superficial. Now fear is overwhelmingly negative. There are many, many references to fear in the Bible. Mostly these are negative. But many of them are tied together with worship. For example, when Jesus came to the disciples walking on water, we're told when they saw him, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost. Then later on, Peter walks out to Jesus, begins to sink. You know the story, Jesus grabs onto him. And then they go back to the boat and it says, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Same thing happens at the transfiguration when the disciples heard this voice, which was God's voice, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. Or at the cross, the centurion, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, truly this man was the son of God. Mark Allen Powell is a New Testament scholar and he's done a lot of work on this curious partnership between joy and fear. And he explains it like this. Joy is what turns fear into worship. Fear prevents worship from being shallow. So it is joy that drives the new parent to love and look after their child, but it is fear that ensures that they do this well. Joy is what gets the bride and groom down the aisle but fear 
ensures that they create a relationship that will last. The expectation of great joy for a dying relative is what sustains the family through the final months and weeks. But it is joy that makes sure that they make the most of what little time is left. Joy gives us a burst of enthusiasm for a new job. Fear ensures that you make a good first impression. Joy turns fear into worship. Fear prevents worship from being shallow. So it is that perhaps fear and joy are not such an odd couple after all, for it seems that they do attend life's big moments together and in fact a healthy dose of both might even be necessary for authentic worship of Christ. So what then of worship and doubt? These seem like an even more unlikely pair. Can they coexist? Is it possible to be worshipping and yet still entertaining some doubt? Before his arrest, Jesus had instructed his disciples to meet him after the resurrection in Galilee. And after being told twice to remind the disciples to do this, the women at the tomb must have safely relayed the information back to the remaining 11 disciples who make their way to Galilee. Now, this is not an insignificant distance. It was a number of days' journey to walk to Galilee. There they met with the resurrected Jesus and Matthew reports, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And we find this very inconvenient because we would like to think that when anyone saw the resurrected Jesus, they would fall at their feet. But yet some still doubted. Now, some commentators have said that perhaps this is because as the disciples made their way to Galilee, they drew a crowd with them. And so by the time they got there, there might have been hundreds of people there. And this might be the instance that Paul refers to when he said that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once. And so some people say, well, it wasn't the disciples that doubted. They worshipped and the others doubted. But in actual fact, there's not great support for that in the way that this sentence is worded. So let's have a look at what might be going on here. To worship is to pay reverence to a divine being. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is worshipped on a number of instances, first by the wise men at his birth, then he's worshipped by the crowd, as he enters Jerusalem on the donkey, then by the women at the tomb, and twice he is recorded as being worshipped by the disciples, once in our passage today and once in the other passage that I spoke about where Jesus walked on water. Now, as a baby, he didn't have much say in it. He had to accept the worship that was um, sent his way. He was too young to do anything else. But the fact that as an adult... Jesus accepts the worship of all of these other groups without rebuking them is hugely significant. In Jewish religious practice, worship acknowledges divine identity and it is tied to a concept of monotheism. What that means is that first century Jews understood that there was only one God 
Mono being one and Theos being God. They knew him as Yahweh. They understood that he alone created and ruled over all things and was to be worshipped exclusively. By their worship of Jesus, therefore, these groups acknowledge him as God. And by accepting that worship or failing to rebuke it in the light of the first commandment, Jesus confirms that he is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. Now to understand some of the issues with this passage, we have to go back to the original language in which it was written, which is the Greek text. In English, we have the word doubt, but there are a number of Greek words that can be translated to this English word doubt. The first of these is diakrino. Now this word is used many, many, many times in the New Testament. And it means to separate, to make a distinction, to decide, to withdraw oneself, to separate in a hostile spirit, or to oppose. So if I doubt that you're telling the truth, it means, of course, I don't think you're telling the truth. I've decided you're not telling the truth and I oppose your point of view and I separate myself from your views. That is diacrino doubt. But that's not the word that's used in this passage today. The word that is used in this passage today is much less common. In fact, it occurs only twice in the entire Bible. It occurs, interestingly, both times associated with the disciples' worship of Jesus. So it occurs at that time when Jesus walks on water and then the disciples worship, and it occurs this time when they get to the mountain in Galilee. That word is distazo, and it means a double stance. So it comes from um, the root words dis, which means two or double, and stasis, which means stance. So this is a double stance. It's a bit like wanting to have your cake and eating it too. It also refers to going two ways, vacillating or wavering or hesitating might be better English words to use for it. So if you imagine a young Australian basketball player who all of their life has dreamed of getting a scholarship and going to the States to play basketball in the college system there. And then, after a lifetime of hard work, the letter arrives in the mail and the invitation is there to take up a scholarship. Hopes and dreams realised, suddenly America seems like a really, really long way away and mum's home cooking never tasted so good. This is distazzle. The young man doesn't doubt that this is a real offer. He has it there in his hand and he doesn't doubt that he wants to go all his life. That's all he's wanted, to go. But here in the moment, he faces another kind of doubt. It's this double stance. It's a hesitation. There's a waver, a hesitation about him. And that's the kind of doubt that is present here in these two instances of worship. 
And we can learn a little bit more about this type of doubt by looking at the only other place in the Bible that it occurs. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and he sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat while he goes to pray. Then in the early hours of the morning, he comes walking towards them across the water. When the disciples see him, they think, naturally, it's a ghost. But Jesus identifies himself and encourages them. Peter, wanting proof that it's Jesus, asks the figure standing before him in the water to let him walk out from the boat and join him. Jesus says, come. Peter climbs out of the boat and walks towards Jesus, but the wind startles Peter. He becomes afraid and he starts to sink and cries out to Jesus who reaches out and rescues Peter saying, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter in that sinking moment didn't doubt that it was Jesus he'd been walking towards. He'd just walked across water himself. No one after doing that would doubt that it was Jesus they were walking towards. But there came a point when he got far enough away from the boat to be out of reach and frightened by the wind, he began to hesitate. He wavered and down he went. Notice what Jesus says. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Not you of no faith. And it's a similar story for the 11 disciples in today's passage. They didn't doubt that Jesus had risen. They'd already seen him. They knew he was alive. You don't walk for many days or a number of days to see someone that you know has already been crucified unless you're sure that a miracle's happened. They did exactly as he had told them to do and they headed straight for their prearranged meeting point, a mountain on Galilee. Why then did some of them hesitate or waver in the presence of the risen Lord? Well, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that here, little faith is linked with hesitation or wavering, this distazo doubt. But elsewhere, little faith is linked with fear, it's linked with worry, and it's linked with a lack of understanding. So perhaps these disciples were fearful. They were, after all, quite likely Roman soldiers all over Jerusalem looking for anyone who was a known follower of Jesus. So perhaps they feared for their own lives or their lives of their own families. Or perhaps it was fear as to how Jesus might respond to them. After all, some of them had deserted him. One of them had denied him. They hadn't really painted themselves in a great light. Perhaps they were worried about what the future might hold for them. Or perhaps they just didn't understand and were unsure how to react in the presence of the risen Jesus. Perhaps they were also still trying to reconcile in their own minds this worship of Jesus as God. Perhaps there was just an element of this is all too good to be true. Remember Peter at the transfiguration of Jesus, full of joy at being present at such an event, yet running around wanting to put up shelters and clearly not understanding the situation. But God uses little faith for big impact. 
Peter the fisherman who stepped out of that boat and walked on water, who hesitated, wavered and began to sink, was rescued by Jesus. And I can't help but think that as Jesus reached out to grab his hand, he might have done so with a little smile on his face because this was a defining moment in Peter's life. It certainly didn't make him perfect and it certainly didn't change his underlying impulsive personality and certainly he went on to say and do many things that he would deeply regret but on that day as he climbed out of the boat and put one foot in front of the other Peter got a glimpse of what God could do with a little faith and it was this rough and ready fisherman who went on to lead the early church little faith with a big impact and the eleven who stepped out of Jerusalem and made their way to Galilee, went on to change the world, literally. Yet what must they have spoken about on that road to Galilee? In their minds, all of this was wrong. The Jews were expecting a political or military leader who would end their oppression and help them overcome Roman rule. They believed that Jesus was this Messiah, the promised one who would come and establish his kingdom on earth, but then he died. And whilst he tried to explain to them that these things must happen, a suffering servant, Messiah, was far outside the realms of what they were expecting. And what an emotional and confusing time this must have been for them. On top of all that, they had their own reactions to deal with. Where had they been when Jesus was arrested and crucified him. These men of his inner circle, supposedly men of great faith, suddenly had to come to terms with just how little their own faith really was. And now here he was, alive again, and calling them out of Jerusalem, away from the temple and that great city where they would have expected the conquering king to return. Kings come to Jerusalem, they don't go to Galilee. But here he was, calling them to Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. And you can feel the emotions swirling as they begin to make their way towards Galilee. Joy, fear, worship and doubt, it's all there. And on that mountain, Jesus passed that baton of ministry to this emotional, worshipping but hesitant bunch. And today there are around 2.3 billion Christians in the world roughly one-third of the population of the world, and it started with those 11 worshipping, hesitant men on that mountain in Galilee. God uses little faith for big impact. And I'm so grateful for this approach that Matthew took, this tell-it-as-it-is approach, because it teaches me that as disciples, it's okay. In fact, you might even say that it's normal to live in this tension between worship and this hesitating kind of doubt. What matters is not that we hesitate or waver. What matters is not that we have little faith. What matters is that we step out of the boat, step out of Jerusalem and start walking towards Jesus. What matters is that we lay down our fears, cast aside our worries, get over the fact that we don't understand everything completely and just keep putting one foot in front of the other, walking steadily towards Jesus. 
Matthew's account tells me that Jesus can cope with our doubts and our fears because I guess these are normal human reactions. What would be not normal is to have no reaction at all. And yet, isn't that just precisely the reaction that is more and more common today? Year after year, we cycle through Christmas and Easter, Christmas and Easter, we open presents, we eat eggs, presents and eggs, presents and eggs, on and on it goes, and all the while Jesus says, come, step out of the boat, leave Jerusalem, and come to me. There are a couple of um, kinds of fears that are important here. One of them is the fear that Jesus won't show up. What if I go or do what I think he's telling me and Jesus doesn't show up? What if I was wrong? It's a fear of embarrassment. And this fear is completely unfounded because Jesus says to us that those who seek me will find me when they search for me with all of their heart. The second fear is the fear that Jesus will show up. What if Jesus shows up and he wants me to hand my life over? What if he shows up and he wants me to forgive? What if he shows up and he wants me to leave my job and go to Afghanistan? This is a very real fear because Jesus will, of course, show up. And this is what he said on that mountain to his disciples. He told them to go into all the nations, didn't he? And they did. He said, go into all of the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Peter, to Peter he said, feed my sheep. Peter did. He faithfully led the early church through its beginning years in Jerusalem. And we stand here today as the evidence that those disciples did go into all the nations, teaching, baptising and commanding people to obey everything that Jesus said. Little faith, big impact starts with one single step. Peter, I'm sure, never forgot that exhilarating experience of walking on water and the disciples, likewise, never would have forgotten that exhilarating experience of worshipping before the risen Lord. In each case, their experience stretched them beyond their current doubts, increasing their understanding of who Jesus is. And so it is with us each time we take another step of fear. So another Holy Week has come and gone and we have spent time reflecting once again on Jesus' journey to the cross, on his death and on his resurrection. We've tried to place ourselves in the shoes of those who were there experiencing all the emotions tied up in that week, the joy of Palm Sunday, the intimacy of the Last Supper, the uncertainty of what was to come, the regret that the disciples must have felt the anguish of the women around the cross, the love of the Saviour on the cross, and today 
the joy, the fear, the worship, and the doubt of those post-resurrection experiences. It is a very emotional week. And it's difficult not to get lost in the emotion of it all. But Jesus' message is very simple. Come to me. To Peter, come, get out of the boat, walk to me. And to our disciples, come, meet me in Galilee. To all of us, burdened as we are with the weight of sin, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So my question for you to ponder is this. When, God willing, we meet here again this time next year to do it all again, will we be any different? Will some of us have stepped out of our boats or left our Jerusalems for the first time and begun taking steps towards Jesus? For those of us who've already done that, will we have confidently taken the next step of faith or the next or the next? Will we be walking confidently or will we be hesitating and beginning to sink? For Peter and the disciples, the boat and the city of Jerusalem are places of safety and security. Obviously, a boat in a storm is a place of safety and security. But Jerusalem too, it was not the home of the disciples. In actual fact, Galilee was their home. But Jerusalem was where they expected the king to come. And it was where the temple was as well. So it represents the boundaries of what was possible in their eyes. And Jesus had to call them to step beyond this in order for them to grow. And likewise, we need to identify what holds us back. And we need to step away from it, step out of it, and move towards the one who gave his life for us. As a church, we have many exciting times between now and this time next Easter. And it's my prayer that as we seek to discern how the Lord is working in this little part of the world, we would be bold enough to step out and join him in that work, remembering always his promise to be with us in spite of our fears to the very end of the age. We don't need to have all the answers. A little hesitation is quite okay. God can and he will use our little faith if we will just put one foot in front of the other and keep walking steadily towards him. Amen. Father God, we thank you for these disciples, these men of faith, and the example that we have from this passage today. Lord, help us in our little faith to take big steps for you. Amen.